0: Welcome to Cleary Gottlieb's Antitrust Review, a podcast focused on antitrust enforcement, policy and practice. In an increasingly complex and noisy world, we strive to provide insight, clarity, wisdom and light. My name is Nick Levy and I'll be your host today. As regular listeners will know, Article 102 of the EU Treaty and regulation of Big Tech in Europe has been an important focus of some of our earlier podcasts. Today's podcast, the third in our series on U.S. antitrust enforcement, looks at the current situation in the U.S. Here to guide us through an array of interesting topics, the two leaders of the D.C. bar, both members of Cleary Gottlieb's award-winning market-leading antitrust practice, each with over 20 years of experience under their belts, Bruce Hoffman, a former director of the Federal Bureau of Competition between August 2017 and 2019. And Leah Brannan, one of the stars of our practice in DC. There's a lot to discuss and unpack. I'm gonna start with a few questions on merger control before moving to section two enforcement and then the specter of regulation of big tech. Bruce, you've been at the center of the antitrust world for 30 years. I'd be interested in your historical perspective on the progressive thinking of the U.S. agency heads. who have called into question the consensus that has dominated for most of your career. In April of this year, DOJ Assistant Attorney General Jonathan Cantor said, I'm here to declare that the era of lax enforcement is over, and the new era of vigorous and effective enforcement has begun. And in May, FTC Chair Lena Khan called for a sweeping reassessment of competition law, with one immediate area for change being merger control. So what's going on and did you see it coming?
1: Well, Nick, first of all, thanks for the question and thanks for giving us this uh, opportunity to comment on these important issues. Uh, First, in terms of what's going on, starting a few years back, this strong and outspoken progressive critique of antitrust enforcement began to take a significant amount of airtime in the United States. Uh, And it rested on a number of, frankly, inaccurate premises, but premises that received an awful lot of media coverage and became accepted as truth. Those premises were things like the U.S. economy has become more concentrated in some way that's related to antitrust enforcement. This has been thoroughly debunked by research, but nevertheless is said over and over again. And as, as I indicated, it's kind of become accepted as true. Uh, and another, another proposition was that U.S. antitrust enforcement had been very lax for quite a number of years. Again, also easy to empirically disprove. Um, there's clear statistics on this, but yet it's another thing that, as we've seen in many things in our recent world, if you say something that isn't true over and over again, people start to think it's true. Um, now, I do think underlying these untrue claims were some legitimate Concerns about the scope and direction of antitrust enforcement, and some belief that at the at least evolutionary changes would be worthwhile. But in any event, this view developed a strong backing, and then uh, eventually became a part of the Biden administration. When I think somewhat surprisingly, uh, President Biden, instead of appointing Democratic centrists to the antitrust agencies, including people like his former chief of staff Terrell McSweeney uh appointed a group of folks that kind of came out of the progressive side of the party uh who raised as i said some good points but also some points that i think are just completely inaccurate uh so what we see now is an attempt uh to implement some of the progressive critiques of antitrust enforcement at the FTC and at the DOJ um And we'll see where that develops. So far, the track record of the agencies in attempting to implement these changes has not been very good. The success rate's low, and overall enforcement is down in the U.S. relative to the last administration. Uh, But there's a lot of activity going on behind the scenes, and I think we'll see a very active arena in the next couple of years.
0: Thanks, Bruce. Leah, I'd like to turn uh, to a couple of cases that are going on at the moment, which have been getting a lot of attention uh, in Europe. Uh, The FTC, as you know, has been attempting some fairly novel theories of late. Uh, In 2020, they sued Facebook to unwind its acquisition of Instagram and WhatsApp, alleging they were purchases of would-be competitors in violation of Section 2. This was particularly interesting, it seemed to me at least, given these were consummated mergers that were previously cleared by the FTC only a few years previously. What do you make of this challenge and what are the learnings you take away from them?
2: Well, thanks, Nick, and, and thank you for inviting me to join the podcast. Um, first, I'd say the FTC's challenge to Facebook's prior acquisitions shows that the current FTC is willing to reevaluate prior transactions, um, even ones that it reviewed at the time and chose not to challenge. Um, second, I think the case shows that the FTC is willing to keep litigating despite early losses. Um, The court in that case found that the FTC's original complaint was legally insufficient, including because it failed to adequately allege that Facebook has monopoly power in the relevant market. Um, The FTC persisted in the case. It went on to amend its complaint in August of 2021, and this year, uh, on a renewed motion to dismiss, the court decided to allow the FTC's monopolization claim to proceed. The court described the amended complaint as far more robust and detailed than before, particularly in regard to the contours of the defendant's alleged monopoly. So in the amended complaint, the FTC alleges that Facebook willfully maintained its monopoly power in personal social networking through the acquisitions of Facebook. Of Um, Instagram and WhatsApp. And the court uh, dismissed the FTC's claims related to Facebook's interoperability policies, uh, because Facebook had abandoned those policies in 2018, and its last alleged enforcement uh, action there was even further in the past. So, you know, it's still early in the case, obviously, and the court said it's, quote, anyone's guess whether the FTC will be able to prove up its claims, but it will be, I think, very interesting to see how the case unfolds.
0: For those like me who don't know that much about uh, the U.S. Uh, practice in this area, how frequent is it that the agencies go after consummated deals, and how often is it that they've brought these kind of challenges under Section Two?
2: Well, the agencies do pursue consummated deals. It's not at all unheard of. It. It's more unusual for the agencies to go after a consummated deal that they actively reviewed um, and chose not to challenge. So typically, when they go after a consummated transaction, it's one that was not HSR reportable. There's some other type of issue, or they uh, open an investigation, you know, shortly after it closes, um, you know, because they've just learned of the deal because of the lack of reportability.
0: Thanks, Leah Bruce. You've been at the FTC. Um... What was your experience there in the decisions you made to go after consummated uh, transactions? Are you a little more nervous or cautious about doing so in circumstances where you've analyzed them before? Or if you think the market's changed or you've got things wrong, it's perfectly fair game to do so.
1: So I would say it's perfectly fair game to bring such a case if either really not so much the market has changed, but if you think you got things wrong in the first place, you know, challenges retroactive challenges to mergers aren't ongoing correctives when all the underlying facts have changed they're really much more directed at the concept that the merger was bad to begin with and that happens so i think as leah said it's extremely rare i'm trying to think of another case where the agency actually affirmatively cleared a deal as opposed to for example the deal being filed in the waiting period simply expiring without any review and then the ftc having or the doj having affirmatively cleared the deal Then brought a subsequent merger challenge. I just can't think of another right now. But I would say there's nothing inherently wrong with that idea. You know, that you you obviously could make mistakes. You know, nobody's perfect and you could have missed something. All that said, challenging a consummated merger is a difficult thing for a number of reasons. The facts have changed. The it may be difficult, if not impossible, to create an effective remedy. Because you don't always have the option of restoring the competitive landscape to the way it existed prior to the review of the transaction, so though the FTC and the DOJ have both always brought consummated merger challenges, I think I once estimated that it was somewhere in the range of 10%, five to 10% of their enforcement docket in the merger space. Uh, they tend to try to do that as quickly as possible. They tend to try to do it when they think there's an effective remedy that can be put in place, and also when the evidence is pretty clear that that the merger was harmful. It's a challenging proposition otherwise and an area where you really want to try to get mergers before they're consummated, which is, of course, why Congress created the entire Hart-Scott pre-merger review or pre-closing review process in the first place.
0: Thanks, Bruce. I'd like to turn to an ongoing case, although one I know that you're not personally involved in, uh, the FTC's recent case uh, attempting to enjoin... Meta's attempted acquisition of VR company within um, seems to be another example of a creative approach to enforcement, at least by historic standards. If I understand well, the FTC is arguing that instead of competing on the merits, Meta is trying to buy its way to the top. And the crux of the FTC's uh, case, um, its issue with the transaction, seems to be that Meta is buying an established VR innovator rather than developing its own VR tech internally. So what do you make of this uh, build versus buy theory? And do you think it's really specific to this particular situation and specific to big tech? Or do you see it as part of a broader uh, application of this kind of theory?
1: So for starters, I agree that this is an important and interesting case and one that's useful in trying to evaluate current thinking in the agencies' current thinking under this administration. It's really, I think, the first case that this administration has brought involving the digital companies, the Facebook case involving Instagram and WhatsApp that we were talking about a minute ago, the current pending challenge involving Google were actually brought under the prior administration. They've been continued by this administration, but they're not originally from it. So this is kind of the first case from the FTC in under this administration, this arena. And it's a very interesting case. It, the build versus buy theory, the basic concept, uh, which weirdly is called actual potential competition in the U.S. Uh, involves the idea that rather than buying, had you not bought a competitor in a given market, you would actually have entered that space yourself and thereby improved competition. So the, or another way to think of it is absent the merger, without the merger in the but for world, there would be another competitor in this market, whoever the acquiring firm is entering. This is a very borderline theory in the US. It has, courts that have discussed it have expressed a lot of skepticism about it I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with it as a legal concept, but I think as a matter of proof, it's very challenging. I think you would have to prove that the firm, the acquiring firm, really was going to enter, that it had a very strong likelihood. It had developed plans. It had the ability, the the capacity and actual intention and something beyond sort of pipe dreams, like a real plan to enter in some relatively short period of time. And that doing so would be better for competition than, for example, buying a firm that's already in the market and improving that. You know, bringing the assets that you developed internally to bear along with your acquisition target to make that target a more effective competitor. In addition, you'd have to show that the market itself has competition problems, so that the merger matters. Uh, I think all of those things are going to be very difficult uphill clients for the FTC in this case because. The market at issue here is extremely vibrant. It's got many competitors entering or attempting to enter. Uh, There's no obvious indication that it suffers from any competitive problems. And it's not at all clear that Meta would have entered, but for this transaction. And that Meta entering by itself would be better than Meta purchasing within and using Meta's assets and resources and capabilities to enhance within's competitive viability.
0: Thanks, Bruce. Uh, There's an interesting... uh... Parallel there, or at least a sister case involving um, Facebook uh, in the UK and its acquisition of the uh, Giphy business, um, where at least some believe the CMA has really flexed the evidence to uh, uh, to maintain uh, to maintain its case. We spoke in the first of these uh, series of US podcasts about the possibilities open to the uh, progressive leadership. They obviously have the ability to bring cases. Um, They have um, the ability to change the guidelines as they're in the process of um, uh, planning to do. They can go to court, and uh, George Carey and Elaine Ewing talked about the uh, defeats that both agencies have uh, suffered, although in uh, the last few days, they've had a notable victory in uh, the book publishing uh, case. Uh, But one of the other things that could be done, of course, is to change the law. And let me turn to a question uh, to both of you about some of the uh, legislative initiatives that are before Congress. As you know, of course, there's general political gridlock in the US, but there does seem to be some bipartisan interest in substantive competition law reform, with members of both parties submitting um, what would be quite significant reform bills, uh, Republican Senator Hawley's trust-busting in the 21st Century Act, and Democratic Senator's uh, Klubertshire's uh, Competition and Antitrust Law Enforcement Reform Act. As I'm sure you know, Senator Hawley's act would require agency notification for any transaction involving a dominant digital firm. It would add a presumption of unfairness to any acquisition over a million dollars by these firms, and it would ban acquisitions by companies with a market cap over $100 billion. And Senator Klubertshire's act would lower the thresholds to block a merger from one that substantially lessens competition to one that merely creates an appreciable risk of doing so. And it would shift the burden to merging parties in certain kinds of markets or situations to prove that their transaction would not violate the law. So my question to you both is, are these good ideas?
1: So I think there are a number of proposed bills that have some positive elements to them, for example, bills on agency funding, bills on modifying or repairing some glitches in the FTC Act. I think there there is some good legislation out there. I don't think either of these bills is a good piece of legislation. I think that's true for a number of reasons. For starters, they completely lack any valid empirical basis. They treat as bad transactions that we have no reason to think would be bad and then think would in fact would likely to be good uh they make it much easier for the government to win merger challenges when in fact the government wins merger challenges at for a us reference roughly the rate that alabama wins football games in college football around a 75 to 85 percent level and i think if you think that winning 85 percent of your cases is not good enough then you actually think there shouldn't be judicial review of mergers And the government should just decide things by fiat, which I think is a terrible idea. These bills would do irrational things. Like, for example, um, Senator Hawley's bill would simply prohibit or presume, I'm sorry, prohibit acquisitions by large companies. So, you know, you could think of, for example, um, a company like, let's just say, Pepsi buying, I don't know, Accenture would be illegal under that act, even even though there's not the slightest reason to think that that would actually be anti-competitive. Um, and there's no empirical basis for the notion that transactions at that size or by companies of that size are bad or are likely to be bad or any more likely than any other transaction to be bad. Shifting the burden of proof to merging firms to prove their mergers would not violate the law would effectively be an almost impossible hill to climb, since it would require you to prove a negative. And it also runs afoul of fundamental tenets of U.S. law, uh, which essentially are that the government has to prove that you're doing something wrong. You don't have to ask the government for permission to do things. Um, This is a core principle of U.S. jurisprudence and something that we shouldn't cast aside here. And, And I think in some respects, overall, this legislation violates a core compact that underlies the whole concept of antitrust law, which is that We want firms to compete aggressively. We want the mergers and acquisitions market, the market for corporate control to function. Uh, We're not going to punish firms simply for being large because you could be large because you're a better firm, a better competitor than others. That's been a tenant of U.S. antitrust law for 100 years. And these bills throw all that aside and say, you know what? We just don't like some firms because they've succeeded really well, they've become really large, or in the case of just Senator Hawley, because they are saying things we don't like or not letting us say things we'd like to say. And so therefore we're gonna single them out for punishment and recast everything so the government has much more control. I think that's fundamentally a terrible idea.
0: Thanks, Bruce. Uh, Bruce, you're, you were a uh, Republican appointee to the FTC. Leah, I think of you as being um, on the Democrat side of American politics. What's your view of these pieces of legislation?
2: I I agree with Bruce. I mean, they're a a really bad idea um, in most respects. And I think the outright ban on acquisitions by companies with market capitalization of more than $100 billion is a really blunt tool. And if large companies want to make acquisitions that would improve their products or allow them to compete more effectively with one another, that can lead to tremendous benefits for consumers, which you would lose with an outright ban. Um, Just to think about one example, you know, I use three different voice assistants today. I use... um, Apple's Siri, Amazon's Alexa, and Google's voice assistant. I don't happen to use Microsoft's Cortana, but that's another option available to consumers. And acquisitions contributed to these voice recognition tools. So Apple bought Voices in 2020 and made a number of prior acquisitions in that space. Um, I don't see that as a bad thing. I'd like Siri to work better. Amazon acquired Ivana software and others. Um, Microsoft completed a $20 billion acquisition of Nuance earlier this year. And if you block acquisitions just outright for large companies, you risk companies being more isolated in their lanes and limited in their ability to expand and compete against one another. And I I just don't think that makes any sense. That's not to say that all acquisitions by large companies are good. Um, They should be evaluated, and they are evaluated today. Um, And as Bruce said, the agencies historically have had a really good track record at winning merger challenges, I don't think you need to change the law to stop an anti-competitive transaction. Thanks, Leah. Bruce, while we have you and before
0: we move on to section two, a question about the guidelines. There's a lot of talk going on about what the revised guidelines are going to look like and um, whether the courts are likely to enforce them if as expected. Um, They're quite different from the existing ones. What's your expectation as to what they're going to look like and whether the courts are going to follow them?
1: So we, we know a couple of things, or at least we think that, for example, the guidelines are going to combine the analysis of horizontal and vertical mergers as opposed to having separate guidelines uh, for horizontal and vertical mergers. And we know that there have been strong calls by current agency leadership to have these guidelines be more supportive of enforcement, more skeptical of benefits of mergers, and some other things like that. Beyond that, it's a little hard to say. I think a couple of thoughts overall. Number one, I think revising merger guidelines from time to time is a very sensible thing to do. We've had multiple iterations of the guidelines, and as time passes, we learn things, we improve our understanding of economics, we improve our understanding of the law, we have real life experience with the changing economy. So it makes sense to think about the guidelines periodically and see if they need to be updated or changed. That said, the current guidelines have been, su- have been successful in court because they're viewed as consensus, neutral, and accurate. In other words, they reflect the current best understanding of real facts and real economics. Turning the guidelines into a tool to try to tell what the courts the law is, is unlikely to be successful. I think, particularly if it's done on a partisan basis. Uh, In addition to that, I think the notion that the current guidelines are overly permissive is, as I said before, empirically falsifiable, since you can show that the government wins most of its merger challenges and brings a lot of cases. So it's a little bit difficult to say why you need to make the guidelines, quote unquote, more supportive of enforcement. And last, while I think it's not necessarily a bad idea to combine the analysis of vertical and horizontal mergers, and in some cases it's a little difficult to frankly even tell the difference. You know, there may be too bright a line drawn between them. There are fundamental differences between vertical and horizontal transactions, and if they're treated the same way, in particular if benefits are treated with skepticism in vertical mergers, I think courts will and pro- should, and probably will reject. The guidelines on those points because that would simply lack a factual and viable economic basis so i think they're going to have to be nuanced and careful in how they treat mergers together although i as i said i think that overall exercise is not necessarily a bad idea
0: thanks bruce so let's turn to section two as you know well uh the european commission has been extremely active in applying its european equivalent article 102 over the last 20 years in particular to firms in the big tech space, um, Microsoft, Google, Qualcomm, Intel, and others. The recently um, retired Deputy Assistant Attorney General for Criminal Enforcement reminded listeners at an ABA conference not so long ago that Section 2 is a felony, just like Section 1, and if the facts and the law lead us to the conclusion that a criminal charge based on Section 2 is warranted, we'll charge it, those were his words, Leah, how likely is it, do you think, that we'll see a resurgence of criminal cases under Section 2?
2: Well, this week there was a fair amount of press coverage when the DOJ announced a Section 2 criminal plea agreement with a paving and asphalt contractor out of Billings, Montana. Um, In that case, an asphalt contractor had admitted that he offered a rival $100,000 to divide the market with the defendant taking Montana and Wyoming and the rival taking South Dakota and Nebraska. Um, After all the fanfare about criminal section two cases, I think this recently announced action was really just the DOJ pursuing attempted price fixing consistent with longstanding criminal attempt rules. So price fixing is a classic section one violation, but there's no criminal attempt liability under section one. So the DOJ has historically pursued attempted price fixing under Section 2. The landmark case in this area was the DOJ's case against American Airlines in the 1980s when American attempted to collude with Braniff. Um, that case involved a fun audio recording between the two airline CEOs that appears in the Fifth Circuit's opinion with asterisks uh, replacing some of the cursing. Um, so that's a very It's a fun and interesting opinion, but this is a long-standing approach by the DOJ, and I would say, um, in spite of all the press coverage and attention given to Criminal Section 2 this week, the DOJ's new case really isn't the kind of Criminal Section 2 case that the agency has been suggesting that it will bring. It really looks like a much smaller and less colorful version of American Airlines.
0: Okay, thanks, Leah. So with criminal enforcement on one side, let's turn to non-criminal enforcement. And I'll ask you a second about the respective um, uh, enforcement practices of the DOJ on the one hand and the FTC on the other. Uh, But firstly, I'd just like to talk about uh, the agency's historic approach to Section 2. Earlier this year, uh, DOJ Assistant Attorney General Jonathan Cantor lamented the dearth of Section 2 case law and promises to vigorously enforce Section 2. So a two-part question, how do you account for the relative dearth of cases in this area? Um, Secondly, two years in to the administration, um, can you explain what's going on?
1: So for starters, there's not a dearth of Section 2 case law. There's a specific dearth of Department of Justice Section 2 cases since Microsoft. The FTC has brought since Microsoft at my last count, um, 18 may now be 20 section two cases. Uh, The DOJ has brought, I think two uh, in that period of time. So there's there's not an absence of section two enforcement by the FTC. The FTC has actually been quite aggressive with bringing section two cases. And in addition to that, there's a very extensive body of private litigation involving section two, which of course generates case law just as DOJ cases do. I think a question would be, why aren't there more Section 2 cases by the DOJ? That's a little hard to judge. I think there's probably a couple of reasons. I think the first reason is that DOJ just has fewer resources to devote to bringing Section 2 cases than the FTC does. these, These kinds of cases, Section 2 cases in the U.S., are the most challenging, the most demanding and difficult cases to bring. Um, They require tremendous resources. They're difficult to think about and conceive of. They require a lot of evidence. And the DOJ on the civil side is smaller. The DOJ staff is heavily devoted to criminal enforcement. So and I, I think it's important to remember that's a critical part of the U.S. antitrust enforcement landscape. And the DOJ needs to be given credit for its largely very successful criminal enforcement program. But it also should be recognized that that takes resources that could be used for civil claims involving Section 2. In addition, historically, the DOJ, this is just a matter of architecture of of the enforcement agencies, uh, the DOJ staff who would bring Section 2 cases are also responsible for merger enforcement. And because merger enforcement occurs on a very tight timeline, I think that it's easy to put Section 2 theories on the back burner and deal with the mergers as they come in. It's hard to devote the sustained attention that Section 2 cases need, whereas the FTC has specific sections dedicated only to conduct enforcement that don't handle mergers. And so they are more able to develop those kinds of cases over the time that it takes than is the case at the DOJ. And last, at the DOJ, I think there's been some sense of trying to find other theories that are more likely to succeed. For example, I defended cases the DOJ brought against Blue Cross of Michigan involving the use of MFN clauses. Those cases could have been brought under Section 2. The DOJ chose to bring them under Section 1 as a rule of reason case, but I would really think of those as the same kind of enforcement. And I also think, by the way, when you're thinking about giving the DOJ credit for bringing single single firm cases, that case belongs in that arena. It's just the DOJ chose not to use section two, I think, because they felt it's more difficult to bring a section two case than it is to bring a section one rule of reason case.
0: Thanks, Bruce. Can you just say a word or two about the cases that have been brought over the last couple of years and what learnings we can take from them?
1: Well, I think there are quite a few, you know, so I think we obviously had pharmaceutical cases like, um, you know, the Abdi case, things like that. Those tend to involve. Well, and actually, the the Mylan case. This is not as recent, but this involved Mylan maintaining and a monopoly maintenance claim um, over exclusive licenses. Most recently, we had the Qualcomm case by the FTC, which created the very unusual circumstance of the DOJ filing briefs against the FTC uh, in the Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. Uh, the FTC ultimately lost that case. I won't give you my personal view of it and what should have happened there, but that was a case that involved a fairly complicated theory of monopoly maintenance by essentially using monopoly rents from one monopoly to disadvantage competitors in an adjacent market. Um, a lot of complexity to that case, and and it was it was quite interesting because it involved a firm that everyone agreed was a legitimate monopolist in the sense that Qualcomm had developed a product that was better than its competitors. but subsequently the claim by the FTC was that it had misused some of its capabilities from that to maintain monopolies in adjacent markets. Right now, obviously we have the Google and FTC case, I'm sorry Google and, um, and Facebook or meta cases pending, which have are very early relatively speaking, so it's hard to know exactly what lessons to draw from them. And then the FTC SureScripts case, which I think flies a little bit under the radar, although I think in certain ways it's actually more important um, than the Google or Meta cases for two reasons. One is it involves digital two-sided digital markets for digital prescriptions and insurance coverage, which actually touch people's lives in a much more significant way than, for example, their Facebook pages do. And secondly, it involves thinking about the antitrust law Section 2 in connection with multi-sided markets, a very important question after the Supreme Court's Amex case. Um, that case is advancing in U.S. District Court, and we'll see what happens to it.
0: Thanks, Bruce. So interesting from a European perspective to hear a common theme, perhaps, which is the number of cases being brought in respect to the farmer and the digital uh, sectors, which have been very much in the sights of uh, some of the agencies in Europe over the last few years. Switching gears to private parties, Leah, you've been litigating a large monopolization case on behalf of the defendant for a number of years now. Does your strategy change when litigating against private
2: plaintiffs rather than government agencies? Well, thanks for the question on private enforcement. I think a handful of agency actions do receive a lot of attention, and those cases are very important but the last time I checked, there were around 800 monopolization cases uh, pending in US courts. Um, So there's a tremendous amount of monopolization case law being developed by private plaintiffs. And I think it's hard to generalize about those cases too much because they really run the gamut. Some of them are cases brought by competitors. Some of them are brought as class actions, on behalf of consumers or other customers. Some of them are individual customer cases. Some of them are even brought by non-customer, non-competitor industry participants. So you really have a range of types of private plaintiffs that might be bringing monopolization cases in the United States. And the types of claims that they're pursuing can vary greatly. monopolization cases focus on a single issue, like a defendant's loyalty discount, for example. Other cases have more of a kitchen sink approach and challenge a very wide range of actions by the defendant. Some of the cases are well-supported and raise serious claims, and plaintiffs win uh, these cases at times. Other cases are very thin and are being used by plaintiffs uh, in part to try to force a settlement through the threat of massive discovery expense. So I think all of these different factors can affect your strategy for litigating these cases. And it's important to understand the type of action that you're dealing with um, in responding to it.
0: Thanks, Leah. it would be certainly interesting to get your learnings on these cases. What began in Europe as a follow-on damage litigation has really now expanded to standalone claims in the way Uh, that it sounds like um, it has done for several years in the US, um, albeit probably not of the same scale yet. Bruce, we we had a very interesting podcast not so long ago from our European colleagues, uh, Thomas Graff, Henry Mostyn and Jackie Holland, talking about the new Digital Markets Act that has been enacted uh, in Europe only two years after it was really first dreamt of. Uh, Big tech and antitrust have been hot topics of... uh, public discourse, of course, now for many years, with some arguing that because of the scale and uh, network effects of the major platforms, uh, they should be regulated, or at least the individual cases that have been brought over the years should be uh, codified and some uh, list of practices that they shouldn't be permitted to engage in made public. The US has been somewhat of a late comer to this debate, but various proposals have been tabled over the last year. What's the current state of play and what should we expect? Is the U.S. going to follow Europe?
1: I certainly hope not. I mean, for starters, I I would disagree with the characterization of the U.S. as a latecomer. I would say the U.S. had intentionally and correctly chosen, as it historically has, not to intervene in markets to hobble competitively successful firms simply because they were successful. And I, I think there's often a mistaken tendency in public discourse to confuse an active heavy regulatory hand and aggressive enforcement with good enforcement in other words more is viewed as better which is not necessarily true and if you want very rough empirical support for that i would say just compare the US and European economies over the last decade and where they are digitally and where they are generally and which one has the heavy regulatory hand i think you would find that the US has done much better you could argue about whether that's because of the regulatory landscape or not but I think it's certainly a, a visible fact that could be influencing this outcome. That said, um, there is a current zeitgeist which is heavily directed at regulating the big tech firms, um, and this zeitgeist has bipartisan support, although for completely different reasons. Um, and I think that that bipartisan support tends to crumble when the de- when you get into the details because of regulation, I should say, because. The fundamental motivations of the people who want to regulate big tech are really at odds. And so when you actually try to craft proposals that would get support, they tend to have real difficulty going anywhere. So I don't know if anything will really come at the regulatory or legislative level from the current crusade against big tech. I also think that it's a little bit running into a factual problem where, for example, we can see Facebook's or Meta's advertising revenues declining. Uh, TikToks and others rising. It's not at all clear that the quote unquote dominant platforms are actually going to be dominant forever. But I do think there's going to be a continued attention to this. And there certainly are a lot of people all over the political spectrum and the economic spectrum who would like to have more regulation of the tech firm. So you can never rule it out, whether it's at the federal level or the state level, or may take place through the litigation process where case law kind of effectively becomes regulatory in certain respects.
0: Leah, you've been following these pieces of legislation. Um, I know it's hard to predict, but do you see any of them passing, recognizing that the balance of power may well shift in Congress in the upcoming elections?
2: Probably not much beyond legislation increasing filing fees. I don't think the more aggressive legislation will ultimately be enacted, but Congress is very hard to predict these days.
0: Just before we move to the quick fire questions, um, uh, one of the early podcasts, um, we interviewed Eleanor Fox. And she, I think, had an interesting insight, which was that really to uh, achieve the progressive agenda she thought was a two-term project, and it might be difficult to do uh, uh, in one because of the jurisprudence and the courts and the consensus and so forth. I'd be interested in both of your opinions on that, starting with Bruce.
1: So. I think you can make changes in a single term. Um, I think the FTC, for example, has made some changes notably in its activity and merger enforcement, not in the courts, but in sort of what happens inside the FTC. There's been some of that at the DOJ. You can make changes by pursuing cases which could be followed for more than one administration. And I do think that there typically has been a commitment in the agencies to pursue cases filed, filed by prior administrations even if you don't necessarily agree with the case to begin with, as long as it's not fundamentally terribly unsound. All that said, I think Professor Fox is right in the sense that um, these are long cases, right? When you're looking at regulatory practice at the agencies, at the FTC in particular, if you're looking at the litigation practice, uh, it just takes a long time to do things. The cases are complicated, regulations are complicated, so time really is helpful.
2: And Leah, what do you think? I, I agree with that, and um, even even with two terms, that might not be enough to affect radical change because the courts in the United States have developed case law in interpreting the antitrust laws. And I think extreme or radical departures um, would be met with some skepticism by the courts. Thank you both. So now to the quickfire
0: uh, questions, um, question for you both. If you could change one thing about antitrust law, what would it be? Let's start with Bruce and then go to Leah and then we'll switch for the next one.
1: So I think there's a lot of interesting proposals you could look at. Tim Wu, for example, has a lot of kind of thoughtful and interesting proposals on this to consider. The one I would single out is a notion is crept into antitrust law that if something is a violation of another kind of law, it cannot for some reason be an antitrust violation. Like if it's a, breach of contract it therefore isn't an antitrust violation. And I think that's just flatly wrong. Um, there's a small part of that where there's some accuracy to it. Some disputes really are just about contracts and don't implicate antitrust. But the overall idea that antitrust is the remedy of last resort and doesn't apply when there's some other remedy, I think is just completely wrong and should be overturned by courts whenever possible or rejected.
2: Leah, what's your candidate for change? Discovery cost. I would say discovery cost in antitrust cases is truly out of control. Um, And so much of that cost is unnecessary. I think that holds for private litigation, government enforcement, and government investigations. I think more attention should be given to focusing discovery and sort of limiting massive expense.
0: Thanks, Leah. So The second of four quick five questions. Can you tell us how you prepare for trial and what advice would you give aspiring litigators, Leah?
2: I think it's important to have a clear story, credible witnesses, and good demonstratives. Um, in terms of advice for aspiring litigators, I would recommend they try out antitrust litigation. it's The most fun. Bruce, what are your tips for preparing?
1: I, I want to second what Leah said about story. I, I had the benefit of working early in my career for a fantastic trial, trial lawyer named Marty Steinberg. Uh, And Marty taught me from the outset that story really is the critical thing. You've got to have a good, clear, understandable, simple story that you can stick to and sound over and over again. And then the second thing is you've got to really know the facts. You know, facts are the most critical things at trial law matters, but it's much less important than really knowing the facts and being able to best put those facts into the context or the framing of your story.
0: Thank you both. Third question, and it will be hard to better the answer of Olivier Gasson, the director of uh, DG Competition, uh, a few weeks ago. But my question is, what's your proudest achievement and greatest regret, Bruce?
1: So I am not going to talk about proudest personal achievements or regrets, uh, which would all, I think, involve or certainly the achievements would involve my family. Uh, I'll talk about professional. Uh, there, I think my proudest achievements were while serving as the director of bureau competition to the FTC, we, I think, accomplished a huge amount. We brought a record number of cases, as also happened actually the first time I was at the FTC. Um, we created the technology enforcement division, which I think was a very important thing to do. And we did all this while achieving historically high staff satisfaction. The morale of the staff was fantastic. We were routinely ranked in the top of the best places to work in the federal government. And the FTC has a fantastic staff that makes significant sacrifices to work at that agency. Having their support and approval and backing for the enforcement you're bringing is a critical thing, and I'm proud that we were able to achieve that. My greatest regret is that we didn't early enough challenge aggressively some of the inaccuracies underlying the narrative about inadequate antitrust enforcement. I think we were too neutral on that when it was obviously not empirically supportable, and we should have been much more strong on that.
2: Thanks, Bruce. Over to you, Leah. I'm really proud of the entire antitrust practice that we built here at Cleary. We really have a fantastic team of partners, counsel, associates, and a really great group of clients. So I think it's a collective achievement, but I'm I'm really proud of the part that I played in that. And I guess my regret is the inverse of um, Bruce's achievement. I, I regret not having had time at either of the agencies in the US. I've always been really impressed with the staff and I love to play offense. So maybe someday.
0: Maybe someday indeed. So the final question, if there's one thing you can tell us about yourself that isn't widely known, Leah.
2: I love hiking and camping, and I'm working on visiting all of the national parks in the United States.
0: Goodness. How many have you done and how many have you got to go, roughly?
2: There's 63 that are designated as actual national parks, as opposed to, I think there's 400-something sites administered by the National Park Service. Um, Of the actual national parks, I've been to about half, so there are a lot left to go.
0: Great. And Bruce, I know you're a creature of the Everglades, so maybe that's one national park you know well. What can you tell us about yourself that's not widely known?
1: Well, I guess it's pretty widely known that I play in a rock band. So instead of that, what I'll say is when I was a teenager, I started writing computer programs and sold some for money. So I was heading down this tech path. But to my 15 and 16 year old brain, that seemed like a much less attractive opportunity than working at Hardee's and McDonald's frying burgers. Uh, In part, because when you worked at Hardee's and McDonald's, you got free food every shift. So I ditched my computer programming and went off to work shifts at fast food restaurants, which in hindsight may not have been the best career choice.
0: Thanks, Bruce. And a call out to his band. Uh, there are many reasons to go to the ABA event in uh, DC in the spring, but one is to uh, uh, to get the opportunity to hear Bruce and his, um, his mates. So thank you both, Bruce. Thank you, Leah. That was fascinating. Really enjoyed it. Covered a lot of ground and learned a lot. Thank you everyone out there for listening. This is Mick Look forward to welcoming you to our next podcast.